welcome to the Brain Tools Podcast, where you're going to learn how your brain works and how you can use it to level up your life. It's practical brain science for everyday people. I'm your co-host, Sam, a self-professed neuroscience nerd on a mission to share brain science with the world in words everyone can understand. And I'm Kieran, and I specialize in neuroscience at university and now run a metacognition education startup in Asia. Each episode, you walk away with six practical brain tools that you can use immediately. No fluff, just the good stuff with a side of banter. Plus, grab our show notes, the research, and tons of other free resources, including guides and classes, just by joining our growing Brain Tools community at braintools.mn.co. Best of all, it's totally free. But for now, the Brain Tools Podcast. Welcome to episode 11 of the Brain Tools Podcast. I'm your co host, Kieran, joined by Sam today. And normally, normally, what we do at the start is tell you all about what we're going to be covering this episode, but we're changing things up a little bit. We've done 10 episodes. We did the Ask Us Anything, which we very, very much enjoyed. And so now what we're going to bring you is a volume-based series, and we're going to be covering the volume of emotions. Samuel, I'm very, very excited for this. Very excited. It's also been much requested. One of the things we both got asked about, DM'd about, Instagram messaged about, <laughs> LinkedIn profile messages, one or two about, was uh, emotional regulation. So emotions in general. It's, it's all about uh, emotions, which is very exciting. Emotion. And that's what we're going to be covering um, in terms of all the different episodes we're going to have uh, in this, which is four main episodes, so to speak. We're going to cover today, positive emotion, which we'll get into a little bit, then negative emotion, emotional regulation, how you can actually leverage that for your own self, and then emotional management, um, basically looking at how you manage the emotions of other people before, Sam, we bring in some experts. We bring in some experts to help us flesh things out Mm. in terms of these emotions, which I know you're very excited about. Very excited about because, uh, as everyone knows, neither of us are neuroscientists by trade. We are obsessed with the brain, but we're not in the field. And so it's always nice to, to give back and get the people who are on the ground doing the research and leading the way, uh, the pathfinders that we rely on for all our information. So very excited to get some of these guests on. Oh, look, um, which smooth up in the world, though. Let's be frank, right? We're bringing on, we're, we're bringing on we guests. Are. We're pumped. Yeah. We <laughs> Noble prize. Here we come. Brain tools. <laughs> Going from no neuroscience, like no neuroscience degree to Nobel Prize in the space of a couple episodes. It's all about the democratization of science is what will be winning prize. You loved saying the democratization of neuroscience just then, part of the the MO. Um, But that that, that obviously does bring us to positive emotions today. And I'm Mm -hmm. I'm personally very excited about this episode. We, in episode two, um, going all the way back to those when we first started, we did go through the neuroscience of well-being, but there was a focus more on, I suppose, the more negative emotions, which we're going to go and double back on next episode, but all about positive emotions today, how you can actually understand what that, what happens in your brain around positive emotions, but also actually look at how to leverage them. How do you actually increase your overall happiness? But Sam, I know at the moment we're sort of in a bit of a positively positivity low point. It's been a twenty twenty been an interesting year. We've said this so much. What a oh. phrase. Twenty twenty has been an interesting year. Twenty twenty has been an interesting year, and I'm sick of hearing it. Everyone's sick of hearing. It. You're sick of hearing <laughs> it about on the news, uh. in the newspapers, from your friends. But it has been an interesting year, and uh, somewhat of a, a low point emotionally. And there are a couple of big factors uh, and external circumstances that point to why. Some of the restrictions around socializing, which has a massive impact, and we're going to talk to a little bit later uh, on the brain and specifically positive emotions, has created some difficulties for us to feel good. But then also you think about just the sheer volume of negative information 
this torrent, this deluge pouring down our throats every day. It's so hard to stay positive. You feel like there's just so many. How do you do it, right? It's it's such it? a good question. I was not gonna lie. When uh, when the Trump Trump debate was on with Biden mm. and then Pence and Harris, I'm like, I don't care about U.S. politics at all. Like, I don't care. No. But it just popped up, and you just see people being like, obviously, very emotional around it. Obviously, because they care about mm. it. But so much negative news, and we're so sensitive to negative emotion, as you know. Well, yeah, that's that's man, that Trump that debate was wild and wildly inappropriate. But we will not go near that with a ten foot pole. That maybe for a future episode. Um, yeah, very emotionally arousing, just like so many different things that are happening in our world right now. And so I think from a timeline's perspective, it's also the fact that you know people are really paying attention to mental health. Absolutely. It's an important one, right? And like, it's only really that it came under the microscope after all the economic impact of the year, right? It was all about the economics. Mm. And then we're like, oh, wait, there are people. People feel stuff. <laughs> and people might be feeling a little bit bad. Like, I mean, oh, for you, wow. for example, in Melbourne, like you've just gone from what, 5K radius that you can go see people now to 25K radius. Well done. Small wins. Yeah. <laughs> it's the little things wins. But then also like things like, you know, you talk about economic, you talk about job loss, future certainty, the financial hardship. So there's, there's so much going on. There is so much going on that is not brain friendly. Absolutely, and and you know how I like to frame things in terms of the Stoic philosophers. Uh, we're gonna we're gonna get a bit of. I think when it comes to emotions, particularly positive emotion today, um, it's all about you know what's in your locus of control. And Epictetus, in his discourses, says this quote, which uh, which I was looking at um, when we were researching this. And the chief task in life is simply this: to identify and separate matters so that I can say clearly to myself which are externals not under my control and which have to do with the choices I actually control. Where then do I look for good and evil? Not to uncontrollable externals but within myself to the choices that are my own. Now, I know that's a very long-winded one, but it's basically saying, hey, in terms of positive emotion, it can be a choice. And I don't want to get into the whole free will Mm -hmm. debate. I don't want to get into anything else other than that. But it's really important to know that happiness can be a choice and you can actually improve it in terms of the amount of positive emotion you have uh, in your life. Totally. It can really be a choice. There's a small caveat that we have to make that some people do have uh, neural wiring and dysfunctional parts of their brains uh, who have long-term chronic uh, depression as a result of dysfunction in neurotransmitters or connectivity in their brain. So that does happen. But for a lot of us, it is, it is totally within our control. And we, we all really want to be happier, right? Like if you look at some of the most popular searches on the internet, It's everyone wants to be happier. We want to experience more pleasure, more joy, good moods. How many times have you sat and thought, like just you, if only I could just make myself a little bit happier? I mean, I've had that thought. I've I've Google long tail searched that. Yeah. (laughs) Literally typed into Google. Such a nerdy phrase. I can't can't believe you said that. I'm sorry. But it was. It was literally just I wasn't talking about happiness into Google. It's like, how do I improve my happiness now? Thank you very much. Yeah, yeah. Oh my God, I won't have any time at Google. So it's got, it's got to be billions. Um, I mean, the flip side of the coin is that we can also fall into negative emotions and rumination quite easily and depressive rumination, which uh, I have been there. We'll talk about that a little bit later. So and like right now, there's there's a lot less happening in the world to be positive for, yes. which makes it more, more important to be uh, purposeful in, in choosing how we nourish our positive emotions to create a bit of a brain sunshine to peek through the clouds, so to speak. Oh, it's, it's a new look field. At, look, look at you in terms of your English ability. I feel like your old English teacher would be very, very happy with uh, the expose of your language just then. <laughs> Shout out, Mrs. Dillons. Thank you. 
but yeah, to your point, it is a very new field. And I think that's the the frame of today as we uh, do delve into all about positive emotion is it's actually only 50 years old. And it was coined by a dude called Martin Seligman, written uh, books around positive psychology. And that's what we're going to be really delving into. It's so interesting when we look at the study of emotion, uh, as we've spoken about, we'll get to, like, we don't really know still a lot about it from a neural lens, like where emotion, like on a neural basis and how it's formed. But all of it has been around negative emotion, anger, sadness. There's not been a lot around leveraging how you improve those positive emotions of happiness, of joy, of well-being. And so I think what is a really good way to start today is actually to understand in the brain when it comes to emotion, what it actually looks like from a positive uh, lens, which I know you have looked a bit into, Miss Your Nobel Prize uh, winning. I, I have. <laughs> my thesis, my doctorate. Uh, and it's, it's quite contentious, right? So even the concept of emotion themselves is quite contentious. And there is lots of theories out there um, from the constructionist theories of emotions of Lisa Feldman Bart to Pankcep's seven primary emotions um, to the various other ones, right? And they're all kind of up in um, up in this sphere of debate of how emotions work because no one can agree on what an emotion is and what they work <laughs> in neuroscience. <laughs> which sounds crazy, right? Can't, can't define what an emotion is. Okay, can't, let's, can't have, let's have Everyone's a conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> with lots of contradictions, but um. I think there's one of the biggest distinctions that I came across in lots of research um, from some amazing books and podcasts was that there's this distinction between feelings and emotions. Okay. you Can I ask? What's the difference? The, all right. Really, really simple difference, right? The difference between feelings and emotions is that feelings is like the conscious experience of effectively a feeling and emotion. So emotions like this underlying thing that happens in your brain, it's subcortical, it's subconscious. Whereas feelings, the way you describe it, it's the way you think about that. So for example, right, your, your emotion, your innate, innate emotion might be, hap- might be defined as happiness, but then your feeling might be joy or it might be serenity or it might be uh, like laughter or all these other different iterations on that emotion. And that's really important because feelings, like the, some of the research that's come out from Lisa Feldman Bart. Amongst she others, constructors. Like I know I've got. I've got she's awesome. She's like I listened to that podcast episode with her and uh, Lex Lex Freeman on the Lex podcast, uh, which was formerly known as the Artificial Intelligence Podcast. Very very good, by the way. Um, and yeah, she's just so smart. Like all the stuff she was talking about, very very much like oh. a probabilistic view of the brain, which is very interesting when it comes to emotions and feelings. Probability intersecting with those. I know she's she's ridiculously smart, and her theories are really interesting too. And her theories definitely pertain to, uh, from what I understand like the feeling construct, this idea that um, like feelings, the way we feel about things are actually constructed in the brain mm-hmm. from the, 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 the emotional basis. Um, and so they're actually, they're learned and they're culturally relevant. And some of the evidence they have for this is there are some island uh, nations where they don't have sadness. They, they physically don't record sadness in the population as an emotion because they don't have words for it and concepts for it, which is crazy. And we'll link to some of that, um, that research, yeah. That is crazy. So what am I understanding from what you're saying? So feelings and emotions, like emotions being the broader character characterization, the reflex of what's going on, and then feelings basically being the descriptors that are used in terms of the communication, right? Which is like this broad thing exactly of happiness, right. you know, pleasure, joy, et cetera, that comes from it. Is that right? That's pretty much it. Like emo- think about like emotions is like the, the stuff happening under the hood and feelings is you describing that. I love it. Uh, there's a car analogy sitting there, I, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> there is, right? Um. <clears throat> yeah, 
Makes a lot of sense because I think then that dovetails quite nicely, right, when we talk about feelings and emotions in terms of, um, you know, hedonian eudaimonia. That was coined by Aristotle back in the day. But we constantly got that, um, I suppose, not dichotomy, but contrast between pleasure and purpose, right? Pleasure being we think about the positive emotion that we feel, um, but purpose being not very well understood and all the research being done under hedonia, which is, you know, hedonism and pleasure. Um, but what we'll find later on as we get through this is happiness being redefined in terms of both of those levers as opposed to just the, the one narrow frame which is largely pleasure which is all feeling and emotion uh, emotion driven but to be frank like it's all about now where it what happens in the brain right when it comes to these positive emotions which i know you looked into a little bit as well yeah it's it's really interesting because the set like the separator is super clear from uh an environmental uh, evolutionary psychology and, and development neuroscience perspective uh but i did look into this a little bit right and um, when it comes to like feeling good and feeling positive emotions, it all from the research, it all, all kind of stems down to this one root. And there was a paper put out called Beyond Happiness, Building a Science of Discrete Positive Emotions mm. from Michelle Shiota et al. Great and they talk about the, yes, thank you, Shiota et al. Uh, they talk about the, like these core feelings, these core positive feelings, right? Things like joy, serenity, gratitude, interest, hope, pride. They all share similar neural activations in the brain, similar neurotransmitters, similar brain processes, but how we feel about them and how we process them is different. As I talked about before, feelings versus emotions. Yes. Um, and there's quite a lot of research that they put forward around this theory of positive emotions being an adaptation or of this family tree of survival, right? So mm. think about pleasure and our brain has driven us to eat food that tastes good because it helped us survive. Just as our brain drives us to reproduce to have sex because it feels pleasurable because that way our genes succeed, uh, our population succeeds, um, and we keep going on as a species. That is that is super <clears throat> interesting because it's, it's the reward in reality. Because yes, like if, if we, in terms of a learned behavior for a human to survive, if that's going to be advantageous, mm -hmm. you want it to feel good. <laughs> you want it to be like a, a, you want, a, to feel good, you want right? the incentives to actually go towards the behavior. Uh, humans and incentives. It's pretty. Sorry, I know I'm poor. I'm not going off a tangent. That isn't so nuts how the humans have been designed. Like, that's crazy. crazy to think that, Evolution. like, it's so perfect. Like, like, when Darwin's just sitting there being like, oh, yes, natural selection mm. is a thing. Like, what? <laughs> it's crazy. Nuts. It just, it's so nuts. And to think that, like, not even humans, right? You think about your dog and your oh. dog and how much they like food. I want a dog. And how much they have this drive to, you don't have a dog. I'm sorry, Keenan. Uh, I really want well, well, we one yesterday at the cast. So, side yeah. conversation. Those, those base, yeah. base, base emotions, though, are so present on your it's animals and your dogs. And that's and that's so like their theory is all our all our positive emotions, all our positive feelings, uh, evolved from this point of like, all right, what's going to help us survive? And they've just been transformed a little bit more when we turned to these incredibly pro-social um, species, which relied on social interaction and fitting in in a social network to survive. They've now been warped into social rewards, where suddenly you can be happy because someone gave you a compliment, rather than just because you ate a piece of food that made you feel good or you know, you, you reproduced. So yeah, that's kind of where all positive emotions stem from this sense of reward in the brain, right? And you did some work on that. You, you had a look into it. Yeah. And this links so nicely into the episode we did on addiction, right? Which I think if I'm not mistaken, mm. was episode five, but it is following the exact same reward framework. And you hear us talk all the time about dopamine, but the reality is our subjective experience of what we call happiness, the pleasure, the rewards, and our general well-being, it actually depends on 
really four or five real part, core parts of the brain. And I don't want to get into like the, the nitty gritty on it. I'm going to take two of those areas as we speak about because they're very, very important. But in reality, you know, you've got your amygdala, Amy. We've already spoken about it. It is not oh, your yeah. emotion detector. I want to make that really clear. I keep uh, We had a bunch of questions coming from people and really appreciated those questions. So, again, feel free to, to put them through. But the amygdala is actually just your salience detector. It's detecting can things you, in your environment. Can you divide salience for the uh, less literate amongst us? Totally. It's just literally noticing. It's the art of noticing stuff. In the same way you've got an alarm system set up in your home, hopefully, sometimes, uh, to prevent ro- robbers and getting, et cetera, you need to have that, uh, those, that, that, that mm-hmm. presence so you can actually detect anything that might happen. And then what happens across everything, in the same way we speak about with dopamine, you've got your VTA, your ventral tegmental area, your nucleus accumbens, all this stuff. All you need to know is this is where rewards are processed. And the one that I want to really look at quite clearly is brain area one, which is the ventral striatum. This is so clearly linked, which is in the VTA, to sustaining positive emotions. Now, Sam, I want you to think about it like this, right? When you walk into a room and it's dark, what do you normally look for? The light switch? I hope so. I hope you don't just go through and just be like, what's going on? You look for the light switch. My phone? (laughs) Your phone. Here is my light. I'll turn on the, 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 the light, give it that. But that's the key thing with your VTA. It's like when you walk into a room, you turn the light on, it's an on and off switch. And this is your literally your on and off switch when it comes to positive emotion. Now, I know that's really simplistic, but it's very well known that this area is so very clearly linked with pleasure and it has a massive, massive influence on life satisfaction and psychological well-being. If you literally just stimulate that area in the brain, which has been done in thousands of studies, you'll see that pleasure, if you will, or positive emotion is sustained across a period of time, which is super, super interesting. That's and it's, it's just basic, very, very basic um, primal instincts, high levels of psychological well-being and lower levels of the stress hormone cortisol. And it's a, a reminder that stood really clear with me is that the brain is so interconnected and so interrelated that what happens to one thing happens to another in our uh, want to maintain homeostasis, which is that maintain that relatively constant internal uh, environment. Super interesting. It's also super interesting to note that that same uh, ventral striatum or the ventral striatal network is prevalent in most mammals. So it's it's like it's across the board, right? It's absolutely crazy. It's crazy that we've got we share these similarities with all these animals, but also the fact that this is like electrical signals that are going on, as we said before. Well, yeah, electrochemical signals as well, because you have the transmission of neurotransmitters between the synaptic class. But not let's not get too nerdy. Well, I'm here. I apologize for that to you, Kieran. I know you hate that. That's all right. Um, like, applying it becomes hard, right? And I think you have a, yeah. good, a few good examples of this. This yeah, on I've and got off. a couple of examples because this, like the idea, like, and that's the thing with neuroscience is it can seem really nebulous, um, and they're just concepts, and you know you can't really see what it's about. But I'll give you some example of how like positive emotions are triggered in response to our brain predicting things in our environment that are rewarding and further our survival. Right? Uh, here's an example: someone laughs at one of your jokes. In the brain, what effectively is going through is happening is your brain saying, hey, you fit in. You will survive in the tribe and therefore you feel good. Right? What an or crazy, right? Crazy. Little things like that. Or maybe like you achieve a personal goal that's in public and everyone congratulates you from that. That's your brain saying you're going to survive better because of this achievement. Again, it's, it's really social based. But it's you feeling good because your brain is correlating what's happening in the real world with these mental models you have, these schemas and associations of your brain with surviving that you, then so leads you to feel good. So that I use mental models. Yeah, literally. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, which is so it's like uh, 
it's quite interesting because these these little things that we we don't even think about as survival mechanisms, when it comes back to it, that's where they really come from. And that's where positive emotions come from. And when you can grasp that all your brain needs to feel good is to have more of these to feel safer as part of a tribe, to to have social interaction, it suddenly makes a lot more sense uh, in terms of getting more positive emotions by exposing yourself to more of this. But there is also some chemical side of things, which we'll touch on a little bit later. But I know you did, like, there was a longitudinal study uh, on this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Well, that that whole point of social interaction, I love that frame where you're talking about positive and negative emotion being a really important uh, indicator, both from the self and both in terms of other people in terms of the relationships that you have, because we are inherently social beings. You know, mm. you can read Sapiens or you can read Humankind, all those books talking about the history of Homo sapiens, etc. The The Happiness Project basically validated this, um, which is the Harvard study um, in adult development. There's a mat- like very famous TED talk on it, and it's basically the, the longest running study on happiness. And it followed 724 people um, that were teenagers in 1938 all the way to now. And the number one variable or correlate of quote unquote happiness was staying connected. And the five to six people you spend most of the time in your life being the most important predictor of your overall happiness, which you know, I pose the question, like, count on your five, if you name the five people that are the most important in your life, labeling them and be like, hey, who are they and how do they actually impact my happiness? That is crazy. And yeah, I didn't even know that. That's a massive study, by the way, 700 people. But like, there, it, it leads really well into the fact that there was a book out called Happy Brain by Dean Burnett, who neuroscientist studied the science of happiness. And his one overarching thing, his key to happiness is other people. He Shark. Said, <laughs> Shark. <laughs> he said, if you held a gun to my head, and insisted that I identify the overarching theme that connects everything I found out about how the brain deals with happiness. It's that so much of what us, what makes us happy depends on other people. So it's born for people. We're born for people. I love it. And that's, I think, a really important frame as we move into, you know, the problems that we um, have when it comes to actually more positive emotion mm. in our life. But that central theme of people is going to come through, uh, obviously, in the brain tools towards the end. Absolutely. So stick around uh, for our section next on some of the brain problems with positive emotions and achieving positive emotions. And now we move into other problems when it comes to happiness and what we talk about in terms of generating more positive emotions in your life. And Sam, I think when it comes to this, I'm viewing, when you say problems, I'm going to view them more as obstacles and challenges to get us Mm. to the other side, things that prevent it. And as we do get to the brain tools later on, it is all about removing those obstacles so we can double down on the positive emotions. So the one I wanted to start with, the, the big problem, you know, I personally have identified here is that the definition of happiness is incredibly narrow. Now, what I mean by that is we have a tendency to Hollywoodize everything. Like think about where your whole notion of like relationships and happiness actually came from. It was Disney movies largely, right? Like Disney movies shaping what a relationship should be, but also happiness. Like, you know, you take the example of the pursuit of happiness with Will Will Smith and you look at all these movies and it creates heuristics in our brain on what happiness should be, but no one actually sits there and defines, hey, This is what happiness actually is. And therefore, we rely on our own intuitions to do it. And then it's always based on what we feel. It revolves around the positive feelings that we have, which are largely pleasure. It's that singular feeling. And it can't be actually reduced into components. And that is false. Because if we don't come around with an idea of what our definition of happiness is, 
and what that actually looks like, how on earth can you actually get there? Like you can't actually get there, quote unquote, to the promised land. And that leads you to think of it as an outcome rather than a process and an outcome. And um, that's something that I want, I, I want to put forward um, because when we talk about purpose and pleasure, redefining happiness in terms of these two real clear levers means it might be a little bit easier for people to, to arrive at, you know, quote unquote happiness because you can't be happy 100% of the time. It's just not possible. But we're sold the pipe dream. What do you think? No, I totally agree. I mean, if it's a problem in neuroscience, it's a problem with the rest of the world too, right? If they can't even define what it is, how are we? But you, you totally Why are you leaving it to us? Why are you leaving it to us? Come on now. <laughs> You're not the experts. We're the translators, the interpreters. Yeah, it, it's a real problem that we can't really define happiness. And happiness is so um, subjective. Absolutely. Which makes it really, yeah, it makes it difficult. It does make it difficult. Um, and the other problem is that it's like we can learn to be unhappy. Oh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. I agree, though. Absolutely. It's, and I like, we pro- most people know that person they have in their life that who kind of has this ingrained frame in their brain of negativity um, and just unhappiness. And they kind of, they choose to be unhappy, right? They choose to see things in that way. We will have this. And then, like, the problem is we know the brain is a prediction engine. This is how we experience the entire world. We're kind of predicting every moment, and our emotions are a reaction to what the brain is going to predict that happens next. That's a really great way to look at your emotions from a really core level and the feelings of how we interpret that. So that is awesome. That's such a that's such a good frame because if we if our brain is a predictor, then in reality we're going to create a bunch of habits. So therefore, when you talked about you know you learn to be unhappy, you're basically entrenching a bunch of um, habits that actually incubate unhappiness, which I I've never really thought of. Yep. That's very very interesting. It's, it's a great frame to look at it from. And then it makes a lot of sense when you know people who are perpetually unhappy, even though they seem to have everything go right for life and they're just not satisfied. Think about like the classic example is, you know, the rich kid who gets everything but is unhappy. And it's yeah. because they've like taught themselves to be unhappy, whether it's through having associations and mental schemes in their brain of what they think they should have, what they're deserving of having, of having that prediction of what their life is going to be, and then the mismatch of the expectations with reality. Um and it's really interesting because because it's about perceptions and it's about our associative constructs that we form over time, some of which are unconscious and we just pick up through our childhood, but many of which we consciously form, they can be changed. So you can mm. you can change the way you perceive a situation, right? And as a result, they've actually shown that you can then change the emotional perce- perception of that situation. I'll give you an example, right? The difference between being surprised and terrified take a clown at a party mm-hmm. if someone loves clowns and they see that clown they might be incredibly excited thrilled run up to that clown super excited but if you have a different person who has a perception of clowns as being evil and menacing and has the f- a phobia of clowns they're going to be terrified of seeing it same objective experience but different subjective experience entirely and that's because of the associative construct in their brain and when this comes to things like happiness, that same frame where you apply around anything external, anything that happens to you, totally dictates how you then feel about it. And, and this is the, the, the problem where people get stuck is they then develop these unhappy frames where everything that's happening to them is, you know, uh, it's an inflict on their identity or who they are and they take everything personally and suddenly they're unhappy for every slight that happens against them. So you can teach yourself to be unhappy. 
Yeah, that that whole idea of like psychological priming, right? In behavioral science, behavioral yes. economics, right? It's like the yeah. if you want to, you know, dictate someone's perception of something, give them a primer that is both either positive or negative, and they'll take it in that exact same way. And to your point, as my final, because I'm I'm actually buzzing right now with this this particular point, and like I'm, I'm so giddy because though, because you're saying like if your brain is a predicting machine, as we've said and what you're feeding its predictions are your past experiences, that it's going to yes. assess it via probability. Like, is this more likely to be a, a scary experience that I need to get away from? And we talk about the whole fight, flight, freeze, but in reality, you know, flight, freeze uh, mechanism yeah. um, around it. I love that. Yes. So good. So good. No, here's, here's, here's one of one way to wrap it up, right? And this is what I thought about. I'm quite proud of this. Like, think about your emotion as an ingredient. So think about your emotion as an apple. And then the way the brain constructs feelings around that is it could be sour or sweet. Yeah. So, so like, you know, you could turn it into like a really sour or a sweet experience of the same base emotion depending on your construct. And I, I this beeline so nicely into my second one because if we take your apple mm. uh, or your, your your fruit analogy, you know, we've got to think about how you actually cultivate that fruit and grow it after it's being tasted. And so, Indeed. therefore, um, the second problem we sort of go through is like, you know, we're not taught how to increase our happiness. Like go back to school just for a minute and go through what you learned. And I'm not having a crack teacher. I work in education and I know teachers who have worked tirelessly across this year. And this is not a, a plug. It's like they've literally worked so hard and I feel for them. But in the curriculum, have a look and see where happiness is taught. And if we don't want to like use the word happiness, let's just say positive emotion. Let's just talk about emotion, emotional intelligence, whatever it mm. might be. It is not taught to us. And so therefore we conclude that again, happiness is a destination or an end destination we must reach, reach during life. And we see it in terms of its components. But what if I told you know a kid who is 12 that it's okay that you're feeling this way? This is why you're feeling this way. This is where you're feeling it. This is where it comes from. Maybe people will be a little bit kinder, but people will be taking more control of their emotions as opposed to letting their emotions rule their life. And I think that becomes that whole notion. If you can't work on happiness, you can't work on your emotional education, then what can you actually work on? Oh, that's so powerful. And I uh, resonate so deeply. It's like the question I've always had is why, why not? Why is that not integral to education? We're not yeah. taught it. It's like, it's like why the school of life is being, making such grounds. Good old Alan, uh, you know, <laughs> doing his thing. But yeah, it's like we are lacking in emotional education. We really, really are. We make yeah. it up as we go. And that's where we don't realize there are internal and external factors that actually can dictate, but we can actually leverage. We can actually push down on these levers to quote unquote increase happiness, um, which I think is really interesting. Absolutely right. And leads so well into my next point. But it's also the fact that, you know, the the problem with emotions is that they're byproducts of both external and internal factors. And often people will try to change one without changing the other and then wonder why they still feel terrible. Example of this, the person who gets rich, the rich guy who still feels absolutely horrible and doesn't experience any positive emotions or you know, doesn't feel good about himself, even though he's changed his external circumstances to, to have all this wealth and fame and power because he hasn't changed his internal mindsets or he hasn't cultivated some other things. So the, like that's one kind of example of it. But when we think about it external versus internal, there's another side of it when it's, it's also the fact that emotions are built. Emotions are built by neurotransmitters. So that's, that's where a lot of the way we feel about certain things comes from. It's in the communication from neurotransmitters being uh, emitted in our brain in response to situations that our body is letting off, like we talked about with the predictions. To be able to experience a full array of emotions, your brain has to have the raw building blocks 
the precursors to build all those neurotransmitters. So that's why some people who have deficiencies with tryptotan, which is mm. the precursor to serotonin, or they have disruption in any of their neurotransmitter uh, emitter processes can often feel depleted or unhappy or sad because they don't have that component. And, but and hence why, that's why antidepressants are on. They're like, they're literally- Yes, you know, SSRIs. Yeah, correct. Replacing- to replace that. So you can have that disruption and that totally uh, influences the way your mood is. But then similarly, if you don't change, like we talked about that before, the prediction, if you don't change the internal mindsets that influence how you see situations, but you change your external circumstances, you can still be unhappy because you can get rich and your brain can say, hey, this is not actually uh, what you want and this is not associated with survival. You're rich, but you're lonely. And so you're still unhappy. And that's like, that happens all the time. It comes up in the news. People chase all these external factors or even coming down to like getting a little bit more personal. I have uh, this conversation with, with my partner and some other people where they've been doing all the right things, right? They've been sleeping, They've been exercising, they've been eating well. And they say, you know, like, I still feel terrible. I still feel depressed. I still feel down. I'm like, okay, well, what are you thinking right now? And internally, they're saying, the world's terrible. You know, I can't see my friends. Oh, how terrible is that? Oh, the news is awful all the time. So internally, they have these these mindsets and these schemas, which are telling their brain to release negative emotions because that's what they're feeding into it. Yeah, it's the internal narrative, right? The stories the we narrative. are the, the stories that are actually most damaging to ourselves, but also most advantageous to ourselves. Um, and that becomes a really interesting point that you raise. That's it. Well, I mean, inputs come from both the external, outside of our, our bodies, what we do, what we put into our body as an input, but then also what we put into our brain and the way we think. And that's 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 one thing we're never taught is that you've got to improve all of them to improve your baseline levels of happiness. Yeah. Makes a bunch of sense. And I think just on that point, because as, as we sort of round this one out, is that I think in reality, and I'm just coming from my experience here to share, is like if you don't have a language around the emotions that you yourself feel, it becomes really, really difficult to express them. And so, you know, mm. I've had moments over the years in my life, not to be too self-righteous, where I've just cried. Like I've just cried in a day yeah. and like I have, couldn't yeah. even categorize it if it was negative or positive. And I realized upon reflection, some of them were like I was crying because it was really positive. And I couldn't I really understand it. Um, and so I think that 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 notion of as we as we flip to, you know, the benefits of um, if you understand your positive emotions and you really go through, um, you know, are in terms of your ability to express it, your ability to actually re- interact with other people and get closer to them. 100%. And there, I mean, there are some some really good benefits to positive emotions too. You hope so. But yeah, <laughs> if there are no positives, what are we doing here? <laughs> 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 we're in trouble very, <laughs> very 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 valid point i love it well i suppose then in terms of um as we as we flip this i know that you've obviously you know we talk about this positive emotion engine that you're, you're speaking about i think if we flip it mm. given your experience like what are some of the benefits when it comes to positive emotion yeah i mean obviously there's the benefits of feeling good but little known secret lesser known secret neuroscience <laughs> Is, is that experiencing positive emotions is actually good for the brain. Oh, Who would have thought? Shock. No wow. way. <laughs> and, found that one. <laughs> and more importantly, you can actually practice them. So it's, it's almost the same as working out for your body, but regularly experiencing positive emotions increases a kind of positive emotional brain strength. 
And so imagine your brain is having this emotion, emotion muscle, muscle that gets stronger when you're happier or learns to get uh, increasingly sad the, the sadder you get because you're reinforcing those neural pathways, myelination, and you're reactivating that circuitry over and over again. It becomes this learned behavior, which is much like strengthening a muscle at the gym. And the cool thing about positive emotions is that they have these really positive effects on both our body and our brain. Um, and they run a study on this. And we, we all love studies. Oh, do we ever? Talk to me. Do we, me love, we love a good study. Validate. They So they run a study to see whether experiencing positive emotions was the same as a healthy diet in the impact it had. And half the study group performed a positive emotion inducing meditation. The other half did nothing. By the end of the experiment, those who practiced the positive emotions had better vagal tone, which is the strength of your vagal nerve running from your gut to your brain. And that does all these amazing things. It regulates your parasympathetic nervous system, which calms you down. It controls the flow of serotonin from your gut to your brain, which is the tranquility uh, neurotransmitter. It helps uh, feel joy and feel calm. It controls all your organs, your lungs, your digestive tract, your heart. Um, so it does all these amazing things. And just practicing positive emotion improved the vagal tone. So it improved how strong it was. That's pretty awesome. crazy. Pretty crazy. And then not only that, practicing positive emotions, they also reported experiencing more positive emotions more often and being generally happier with their lives as a result of doing this with less depressive symptoms over time. So you can practice it and it works. Practicing it like a muscle. And I think it's a really important frame because as I, as I come into mind, mm. like, you know, you know how metaphysical I can sometimes get. <laughs> sometimes. High level. Sometimes. Emergent properties. <laughs> three hours of me just rambling on about the meaning of life and how it's a bad question. Um, but <laughs> the, the one thing that I will say around this is um, there is a famous, very famous Stoic philosopher. Um, and for anyone that hasn't read it, there is um, uh, an essay called the, the Shortness of Time by Seneca or an essay by Paul Graham, who's one of the founders of PayPal um, called, you know, Life is Short. Um, and the reality is Seneca says this in, in these letters and he says, it is not that we have a short space of time, but that we waste so much of it. And if you and I reflected upon this the other day, how much time I've spent, I've wasted in my own mind as a prison there with all this negative emotion, but without really thinking about how awesome the positive emotion I felt actually is. And if you've only got, let's say, you know, if you're lucky, you got 80 years on planet Earth, and you want to take a, you know, take a bird's eye view and be like, hey, would I have preferred to experience more positive emotion than negative emotion? That does not take away from the struggle. You need to have the struggle to appreciate how good the good stuff actually is. Um, but I would take more positive over negative any day of the week because then you'll waste time. I, lo I love that. Prisoner. A prisoner of my emotions. Oh. <laughs> I definitely have not. I've heard that so many times before. Just, uh, just, borrowing, <laughs> just borrowing. Not poetic, promise. We're really making uh, English teachers proud today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're trying our best. But that mm. does lead us to our favorite section where mm. we're going to get into the brain tools. We're going to look at six key brain tools um, to improve the amount of positive emotion in your life. So stay tuned for that as well. We come back with it. All right. And now we're going to wrap up with the brain tools, everyone's favorite section, the most practical section, and the part I get the most questions about with people trying them. I always love hearing uh, people using them and coming back and saying, hey, it actually worked. And me saying, yes. Best feeling yeah. ever. Best feeling ever. Yes. It's so good. It's so good. Um, and I had some, we've had some really great feedback about that. So if you, you try some brain tools and you like them, let us know. It's amazing. But before we do get into the brain tools, I need to let 
you know about this, Kieran. I need to let you know that a few years ago, they ran a meta-analysis of thousands of people, over 20,000 people to find out what correlated most with happiness. Okay. Well, first, meta-analysis, really like it. We like meta-analyses here. Second- We do. What happened? What's in this? What are so, the factors? So they, they came up with five factors. Do you want to have a stab? Do you want to have a stab at what the top five factors were? Uh, now, this is the first time you've quizzed me in like 11 episodes. So it's been now, a while. Now, yeah, it's now, it's like, now it's like turning on me. Okay. So I would say exercise has got to be one. Well, yeah, it has to be. Um, I would say sleep. Always. Um, I think we've spoken a lot about social interactions. So I'd say like your relationships and friendships and stuff. Um, I don't know the last two, uh, like having per- like purpose, like your work, like your relationship with your work. In, in a way, in a way, I'll give you that one. Um, and I don't know, like something like giving back to your community or something like giving back. Yeah. All right. You did pretty close. You did pretty well. So we're going to go in reverse order for the five. Cause you actually, you got four out of five. Thank Number you. five correlated was exercise. Bing, bing, bing. <laughs> Number four, volunteering, as you call it ah, out. We're going to get to that later in a bit. That's good. Yes. Well, actually, you got all five because number three was spirituality or religion or belief. Belief. Very, very, very good. I like it. Victor Frankel. Very makes sense. Victor. Huh. Search for some <laughs> meaning, man. Search for some meaning. Uh, number two was social interaction. And of course, number one was sleep. So number one correlate with happiness was quality of sleep, which is just crazy. It's amazing. crazy. None of these five surprise me. And us. They don't like, surprise we've, me. We've spoken about this ad nauseum. It's like, well, well, let's let's uh, reduce the brain tools podcast. Yeah. Do these five things. <laughs> yeah, do these five things and you'll be much better for it. So yeah, none of them really surprise us. But if you want to go uh, and find some brain tools on some of those, sleep was our first episode and well-being was our third, I believe. Uh, so we've got some there. Really, really, really fascinating that those things come up. Um, and before you try any brain tools, maybe try getting those right first. But- when it comes to brain tools uh, around uh, positive emotions, yes. we've really got to address the adel- elephant in the room. And, an and that is this. There is an elephant. Uh, it's an elephant in your brain, uh-huh. little elephant yeah. in your brain, little guy, that you can actually rewire yourself for unhappiness, for happiness, just as you can wire yourself for unhappiness because of your neuroplasticity, because of Hebb's law, neurons that wire together, fire together. Um, you are able to rewire your brain to be, happier and have a, a happier baseline uh, over time. And there's been plenty of studies that have proven this as well as lots of nascent research coming up in this space showing people doing certain activities and exercises that we'll talk about uh, that improve their baseline levels of happiness over time by rewiring their brain and generating the right kind of connections that teach you to look out for the, the environmental cues that make you happier or create those associations. I love that. It's very, very interesting. It's a very interesting frame because I'm thinking Naval right now, and you know how much we love Naval, yeah. but it's, it's like, like, we do about learning. It's like all the resources to learn are there, but the motivation to learn is scarce. And I think that's a classic case mm. of rewiring your brain as well as we get into these. Oh, well, absolutely right. It's the, We have the power, basically. I'm, this is what I wanted to say is you have the power to change your brain. You have the power to be happier for most people unless you do have uh, dysfunction in your brain um, and you, you do – uh, experience some, some negative emotions as a result of that. We might not be able to change that, but for most people, your brain's are pretty plastic. I thought you were about to go Tony Robbins. I thought you were about to go Tony no, Robbins. I, I, mean, I thought you were, but you, I would you not know, do that. I will not do that. Like it. I have not even mentioned that man's name in neuroscience conversations ever. Is discrediting the entire field in some ways. 
Right to one. Um, Pumped. Right to one. Right to one. And this comes from Lisa Feldman Bart, her amazing book called How Emotions Are Made. And she was the one who's pioneered this constructionist theory of emotions. And her brain tool is uh, do a body budget. Do a body budget. And the idea is, right, you take uh, a tally of everything your body needs, like we spoke about before, nutrients, sleep, exercise, social interaction, spending time with friends, being outside. You do all these things that are a kind of a surplus for your body that are like deposits into your, your body and your positive emotions. And you have a look at how many you're doing. And maybe you do a bit of a count and realize, hang on, I'm actually not spending enough time with other people. or I'm not exercising enough. And you do a bit of a budget, you, you, you weigh it up and you have a look, are you a deficit or a surplus? And the idea is that if you get all everything right and if you're in a body budget that isn't a surplus, you're doing all the right things for you, you're much more likely to be experiencing positive emotions because your body is getting what it needs. Those inputs we talked about, both external and internal. So the action is this, sit down, write out everything you're currently putting into your body from an emotional input perspective um, like we just referred before, sleep, exercise, social interactions, volunteering, um, hobbies, anything that is rewarding and enriching to you and also keeps you healthy. And then have a look at anything that you might be missing and seeing what your body budget is like. And that is brain tool number one. I think that appeals massively to all the corporates listening in. You know, people always say your body's uh, a temple. No, your body's a bank. <laughs> your body's a bank, yeah. <laughs> got a chuckle like currency in apparently. <laughs> I thought you would have liked that, a bit of P&L. Oh, got to love a profit and loss statement, hey, which uh, <laughs> will come into brain num- tool number two, which actually really dovetails quite nicely. So if you get all those things yeah. right, all these activities and inputs, my brain tool number two is actually to note your positive emotions. And this is a principle yeah. for mindfulness known as noting. But what I would posit, Sam, is that too often we can get very consumed by both negative and positive emotion that we experience, that we don't actually reflect upon the drivers of the what is actually causing that. So we don't have a cause and effect relationship between what we do and how it makes us feel, particularly in the positive realm. Um, and there's a book by a dude called Paul Dolan, who's actually a behavioral um, economist, uh, basically one of the mentees of uh, Daniel uh, Kahneman from Think Fasting Slow. And he has a book by called Happiness by Design. I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and he basically quotes in there that he says, change what you do, not how you think. You are what you do. Your happiness is what you attend to. And you should attend to what makes you and those whom you care about happy. And I think that, that like, hits you right in the face, right? Say, hey, what are the things that are leading to your happiness? So what I would say is mm-hmm. if you, like the next time you are feeling like joy, you're feeling happiness, right? Um, and that is obviously a positive emotion underneath the feelings, as you said before. Take note of this and maybe even journal down these things. I did this the other day and I'll talk about it in a little bit. But like where do you feel the emotion in your body? Like where is the sort of psychosomatic tendency? What were you doing when you felt that emotion? What was the specific activity? Were you at work? Were you with your friends? Um, how long did the emotion actually persist? For example, was it a long one or was something very, very acute? Um, and I think the last two questions that I put in there as a frame is how pleasurable was the activity, you know, scale of one to seven, and how meaningful was the activity? And the reason I bring that as a frame as we sort of move forward is you can categorize activities you do in terms of the pleasure it gives you and the purpose it gives you. And so Seneca's point of the unexamined life is a life not worth living becomes a really, really salient. Um, And, you know, if I watch a movie, for example, that's a highly pleasurable thing, but it's not very high in purpose, but it still contributes to my overall happiness. But say I'm at work and I'm starting a startup, um, for example, I'm feeling a ton of purpose. It is not fun sometimes, 
but it's still contributing to my overall happiness. And so this is a form of mindfulness that anyone can do to take note of those things. The more you take note, the more awareness you have, the more awareness you have, the more likely to regulate based on that fact. So Sam, note your positive emotions. Yeah, yeah, super interesting stuff there. And I really like the idea of noting your emotions and, and doting on them and touching on that idea of uh, hedonia and eudaimonia there too as well. Great inclusion. What I was wondering is, have you heard of the Saving Emotions study? I have not, but you've already no. you've me. What's What is this study? It's a it's very, very recent piece of neuroscience where they had a look at people who spent time uh, kind of relishing and saving in a positive emotion. They used the sunset and various other pictorials to help induce feeling good. And what they found was people who got better at savoring and living in that moment and noting that emotion had higher activation in their ventral striatum uh, and over time got better at activating the ventral striatum. So they had like longer, more stable, positive emotions as a result. That's, it's so interesting because we, you know, we, we're talking at the moment about probably like the, um, you know, how much emotion you feel, but how much is a function of frequency mm. and intensity, right? And so that becomes interesting 100%. over time, how much emotion you feel. So I, I really like that, which actually lends it quite, itself quite nicely to brain tool number three, which I'm just going to break up the order today, Sam, if I can. Um, Go but on. I wanted to what do you take got? that frame, as you said before, of the sort of hedonia, eudaimonia of pleasure and of purpose and actually look at brain tool number three, which is listen to music. Now, this is uh, probably coming from left field, but there's been a lot of research done in terms of music psychology mm. field um, of study. And some people are actually really dubious about it. Let's be frank. It's, people are very dubious about this. However, this is an activity in terms of, you know, listening to music that is much higher in pleasure than it is purpose, right? Playing music would change the purpose-pleasure pendulum. But um, there's a quote here in, the, um, in a study done by Heinemann et al. And it basically says, making and enjoying music is an essential component of human cultures across the globe. And it has likely been for thousands of years. The first instruments, the first mm -hmm. flutes made of mammoth ivory and bird bone, they're thought to be 42,000 years old. So it is such a core part of human civilization it has to, not it has to play a role, but the role should be explored in that plays in terms of its impact on how we are. Now, Sam, study. You ready? I love studies. Study to back this one up is there are a bunch of fMRI studies that actually suggest that familiar songs may be really good at activating our brain's reward pathways. That ventral striatum we talked about being very, very important. Mm. One particular study actually found that people had more activation in the reward circuitry when they listened to familiar songs versus unfamiliar songs, suggesting that those songs that are familiar to us in the same way people who are familiar to us um, actually is crucial for emotional engagement. And I can say this right now to anyone, which is tell me a song that sums up your school experience as an example. And for me, right? It was familiar songs, getting nostalgic. Every year, a year twelve, final year of school. At every eighteenth birthday, us Trinity boys were so we were so lame. But at the end, we would actually put on the song "Little Lion Man" um, by Mumford and Sons, and we would just have a massive dance off for three, four minutes. And every time I play that song, it takes me back to those memories. Um, mm. And you know, that's a very, very clear part of familiar songs bringing you back to times when you were happy becomes really uh, useful as a tool. Now, don't get bogged down in it all the way and just wish that you were in your past. That's a very, very, very dangerous thing. Um, but I just wanted to put that forward. Familiar songs can increase uh, your happiness from a pleasure standpoint um, immediately. That is amazing. Uh, I love that. And I've felt that as well. You, you know, when you listen to one of those songs that takes you back to a moment in time and you like you smile you physically smile yeah, absolutely because you're you're reward 
And the crazy thing is, and they did some research around this with music uh, and older people and nostalgia Ooh. was when they listened to songs that brought them back in time, that transported them. It activated the reward circuitry like you were speak, speaking about, but then also helped keep their brains healthier by reactivating these old memory pathways and eliciting or the release of all these positive uh, neuroprotective neurotransmitters. So keeps your brain healthy too. I love that. And my only final note on this is just to note the breakup song on the flip side, which is everyone's got, <laughs> everyone's got their breakup song. I tell you, the amount of times I've played in certain relationships, Harry Styles' Sign of the Times of recent is not a good, oh, thing. It's not a good thing. But what I would you say- You should not be admitting that in public. <laughs> I, I, I think open book right now. But when it comes to those breakups just as a thing, it's very important not to go down the spiral of songs that make you feel negative emotion. Mm. It's very easy to go into secondhand serenade and the emo music. Go get your happy playlist and put that on. You're more likely to feel a lot better as well as my final one. That's really good. And and it's something we're going to talk about next week. It will be that concept of depressive rumination uh, and the spirals, as my friend likes to talk about. But that wraps us up. For this section, so stick around for our last three brain tools. They're going to be uh, some good ones in there. Sounds good. All right, and now on to the last section. The last three brain tools are for positive emotions, and we've got some really good ones. I'm going to kick it off, get straight into it. Brain tool number four, behavioral activation therapy which is a big wanky word for do more stuff (laughs) effectively it means do more stuff what a a term i know what a term for it um so dude it's so silly there's basically a plethora of research out there uh and this has been found to be a really successful treatment for long-term depression Mm. because basically doing more things leads to more experiences that can contribute to happiness as as well as, you know, increasing activation um, of your social networks, increasing the movement. Basically, the more things you do, the more chances you're giving yourself to have experiences that contribute to, to be happy. Uh, and so, like I said, this approach has been shown to alter the activity in the emotional regulation, motivation, and habit circuitry in the brain, uh, namely the medial prefrontal cortex, orbitofrontal cortex, dorsal striatum, uh, respectively. It's a research from Dicta et al. 2009. And it works best, uh, as we talked about before, with socially or intrinsically rewarding-based things. So uh, things that make you feel good or things that allow you to be around people. Um, Richard just studied the, studied the happiest people around the world and what they found, as we noted before, was that strong relationships was one of the, the highest correlations. So a bit of personal experience. This is actually how I broke my own depression which we've never really broached before on this podcast. We have not, mate. Uh, we how, have not. Can I ask, how did you go about uh, that? Yeah, so I slipped into uh, a massive funk, so to speak, but it was a period of depression. Uh, would have been second year university. I got glandular fever. I had another fever like glandular at the same time. It messed with my endocrine system, my testosterone, uh, and then combined with some nihilistic thoughts, I got uh, I got into a pretty dark place. Mm. Uh, End up seeing a psychologist for a little bit, and one of his recommendations was just like go do some stuff, go for a swim, go move, go outside, go see something new. And I thought it was it sounded really silly personally, but the more I started doing this alongside some some other uh, activities and exercises and vulnerability, the more I just started to feel 
coming back into myself. And what I noticed personally is that the more things you do, the, the less time you give yourself to feel negative emotions and the more to opportunities you give yourself to have these amazing experiences which makes you smile. Yeah, man, that's massive. Thank you. Thank you for sharing. I know we've obviously spoken off the air a bit yes. in the past, but I think it's obviously, well, as you said, sharing moments of vulnerability that are massive. I was going to ask if I can, which is, do you, yes. can you remember like one of the activities or one of the first activities where you start yeah. to feel more positive emotion? The, the big one was, and this was a direct uh, recommendation from Graham, my psychologist at the time, was go swimming. So I started going swimming and doing laps once a week. And the exercise and the breathing and the fact that I was just going and doing something yeah. made me feel amazing. Uh, and it also helped that I got a friend or two involved. Um, so that was really cool. So yeah, the, the action really is to have more positive emotions, do more things, and do more things that are rewarding to you or that allow you to be around people. And that's brain tool number four. Mate, that's massive. I think that's uh, a huge one because to piggyback off, you, off what you're saying, anytime I feel really mm. down, um, and I, I'll be honest, I don't think I've experienced depression before, but definitely had days when I've, when I've been sad, is learning something new. So yeah. I, when I, whenever I feel like I'm down, I'll go learn something new and I'm like, wow, the world is such an amazing place. I think we can get so bogged down mm. in our minds that we don't realize like right now, you and I are having this conversation. What's going on in our brains to have this conversation is nuts. We're now on podcast uh, software that was created by humans. And the more like you can appreciate those little things of how bloody cool we are, you sort of just sit there and be like, wow, the world's actually pretty cool. Those little moments of gratitude, um, they make a big difference. They make a really big difference. And it's really about doing things that are meaningful to you, right? Spot on. And I think that leads, leads really nicely into brain tool number five, as you said, um, in the five factors, which I didn't realize before, but um, brain tool number five is volunteer for a cause that you care about. Now, like when you like take again the pleasure purpose pendulum, um, you would say, arguably based on the research, that this is of a higher purpose activity than mm-hmm. pleasure activity. I'm not saying you can't derive pleasure from it, but let's be frank: some of the volunteering that people do, you see some pretty dark things, and it can make you feel some negative emotion. But there is a neural basis of the of, of what we call the helpers high. Have you had that before? The helpers high. I, I have. So I've done my share of volunteering my time and I've definitely had those moments. I volunteer for Camp Quality where we uh, uh, volunteer our time with kids who have killed her or the, uh, have have cancer and gone through therapy or the bereaved siblings. And you have that 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 uh, help us high always at the end of camp and then you have a help us crash. Yeah. It's a very, very, again, when you remove that stimuli. And what's very interesting with this helpers high on that note is that people who do behave generously, giving their time back to the community, it actually involves very interestingly, the same brain areas that are involved in other inherently rewarding behaviors, such as eating and sex, right? And we talked about the idea that it's not a, it's a more purpose-driven thing, but there's very clearly um, an intersection between that pleasure and purpose uh, in the activation in the brain, which I think is it's actually fascinating. That, that's that's crazy. And it, well, it ties back into where, you know, positive emotions come from. Yeah, absolutely. They come from it's that reward circuit. Goal-directed behavior. And there was a study that um, completely validated, And but the, there was a very surprising part of this study, but it was published May 19, 2016 by the British Medical Journal, and it found that the volunteering benefit was actually strongest among people aged 45 to 80. So very, very interestingly that in the older population that it was – even more salient. And there's a bunch of hypotheses around this. I'm not going to go into them. But when we talked about that aging episode, uh, if you do remember, yeah. that was a very distinct thing that giving back, but if the older generation do so, that uh, 
that becomes very, very big for them. Um, the one thing I just want to note here, uh, and we're going to get a little bit of got a little, a little bit of behavioral uh, science in this, is we just want to be very mindful with some of these things um, of reverse causality and selection bias. And the reason I say mm-hmm. that with volunteering, as an example, is you know we say volunteering can cause or is correlated with happiness, but in reality, you could have the reverse causality, which is happier people are more likely to volunteer. And so the reality is, you probably need a little bit of baseline happiness in order to be more likely to volunteer. But again, it doesn't discredit the notion that volunteering can be correlated um, with that. That's that's such a great point. I think really refers back to uh, the those inputs being external and external. So you know, like you you get a happier person who volunteers, then they're going to have a higher level of happiness as well because there are other inputs are contributing to it. Absolutely. And so the action set here um, for anyone really is to pick a cause that you care about. It can be anything, uh, anything at all. Mm. Um, for example, uh, my girlfriend, wow, I said that the first time, uh, but my girlfriend, uh, <laughs> wow, big moves, big moves. My, girl, my girlfriend uh, is actually volunteers um, with a lot of the LDP, LDP people in Singapore. And we have conversations about it a lot. And when she comes back from it, you can see that there is such like this, I know this sounds like a very uh, we would say, but beaming purpose. It's like you see she's done something mm-hmm. that she really cares about that um, makes her appreciate her own circumstance as well. Um, you can volunteer even if it's remotely or over Zoom. Um, and it's not a selfish thing to do. I, I I push back when people say it's selfish to take care of your happiness because in reality, if you're not taking care of your own happiness, then how on earth can you make other people happy? It's like the classic, if you want to change the world, change yourself. Um, and so, yeah, looking after your fellow humans, uh, given we're all so interconnected, uh, starts with looking after yourself. So volunteer for a cause that you care about. Brain tool number five. That's a great one. That's a great one, especially if it's pro-social too, uh, because whether or not we like it, everything we do is about being around other people. As Dean Burnett says, it's like the one of the biggest contributors to our happiness, other people. Uh, ties really well into brain tool number six, which kind of encapsulates all of what we're talking about. And it's this idea of like strengthening your positive emotion muscle, like the practicing feeling good. And so like overall happiness is both the ability of your brain to produce and release Positive emotion neurotransmitters, which is why some people, as we referenced, uh, experience depression. Their ability is disrupted chemically or psychologically or neurologically for whatever reason. And it's also the frequency with which you trigger these feel-good chemicals, which can be practiced. So practicing feeling good and positive can teach your brain to become better at doing it. And this is really leveraging, like we talked about before, the neuroplasticity to increase your baseline levels of happiness by in improving the connectivity in your brain associated with the positive emotions and with the triggering and release of these emotions. Um, you can use your mind to change your brain. So there's a really great study that I love, 2015 mm-hmm. study by Haller and Davidson from the Center of Investigating Healthy Minds at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. And they found that prolonged activation of a brain region called the ventral striatum, as we talked about, is directly linked with sustaining positive emotions and reward. Uh, and the study was looking about the, the ventral striatum as being in the locus of your control. So basically, you can practice activating this ventral striatum or you can practice feeling good. And as a result, you get better at doing it. You improve the connections in that area and therefore it happens more frequently and it becomes almost like this happiness cumulative snowball. And you notice this, right? There are people who actively seek to be happy. There's people you associate them with being having a good vibe. And no matter what, they always seem happy. That's probably because they have this really, really developed 
Venture Australia and region or another region of the brand called the Bricunius and the Grey Meadows even bigger in this area. And as a result, they're able to be happier more often because their muscle, their positive emotion muscle is so much stronger. Um, really simple way to practice this, gratitude. Gratitude and have some fun. So those are both things that release positive emotions and that you can selectively choose to do. So the action is to create a feel-good gratitude practice. Um, and I have some ideas that you can use. Write down your gratitude practice or you can listen to music, smile and reflect to use your brain tool as part of your daily positive emotion practice. Or you can just do something that makes you feel really positive, whether that's drawing, painting, something that lifts you up. And if you do it every day, if you do this every single day and you practice feeling good every single day, guess what? You're going to get better at it. And as a result, your baseline level of happiness improves because your, your brain's ability to be happy improves. Compound interest. Got to leverage Compound it. interest in the brain. Got to super, leverage. super strong. I think that's an amazing point though to wrap on this one because I think – I think we still, and I'm coming from an opinion base, which is very rare for me to come from, but I think we still underappreciate neuroplasticity. I think we still really underappreciate that we have the ability to change our brain. It is harder as you get older. Don't get me wrong. It is very, it's difficult. Yes. It's not like it's an easy thing to do, right, compared to when we were younger. But mm-hmm. the fact that you can hopefully gives people a little bit of hope that doing these things can compound across time, but it's not going to happen overnight. You're not going to just do a journal once and be like, oh, yeah, I'm happy. It's it's, it's that uh, repetitive habits um, that will allow you to take care of this. Over time as well. Yeah. I mean, so there's Daniel Oman who did this, Daniel Amen, sorry, who did this amazing TED talk and he talks about neuroplasticity where people who severed concussions and minor brain damage were able to reverse the impact of said brain damage through selective training and neuroplasticity. Like the power to change our brain is huge and we underappreciate it. That's spot on. I love it. Well, those are those are the six brain, brain tools. So, Sam, let's just uh, let's recap these brain tools before mm. we uh, we wrap up. Your brain tool number one. Brain tool number one: do a body budget. Uh, look at all the all the inputs going in your body and buddy, yeah, buddy. <laughs> wow, I lost my <laughs> lost my mouth there. Brilliant look at all the inputs going into your body. Tally them up. See if you're at a deficit or a surplus. And if you're at a deficit, start doing some more of those things that are positive inputs. Brain tool number two. Brain tool number two is note your positive emotions. When you mm-hmm. feel emotion, try and trace it back to the activity that you were doing and reflect and examine what was driving that, particularly in terms of the pleasure and the purpose that that activity gave you. Brain tool number three. Super strong. Yes, brain tool number three. What was it? Me. Listening to music. Yeah. Uh, again, a thing that is more high in pleasure than it is in purpose, but actually trying to go back to those songs that are very familiar to you is based on the research is going to make you feel a lot more positive emotion, particularly in the pleasure category uh, as well. Mm, nice. And brain tool number four, the big fancy psychology word of behavioral activation therapy, which is just do more stuff, do more stuff, give your brain more experiences that nourish it and also remove or distract you from sitting there and ruminating uh, in your negative thoughts. Uh, And some of the stuff you can do is really positive too. I love it. Brain tool number five, volunteer for a cause that you care about. It shows heaps when you give back to your community, when you are generous in that behavior, it is going to activate that reward uh, sector. uh, And that is what can definitely uh, improve your happiness. So pick a cause you care about. Mm, super strong. And brain tool number six, wrapping it all up, is strengthen your positive emotion muscles by practicing feeling good, by doing something that makes you feel good every single day. It's really simple, really easy to do, uh, whether that's a gratitude practice, whether that's listening to music or just doing something you love. 
I absolutely love it. And the, the one last point that I just want to make on all these brain tools is that we are obviously looking at how we can leverage and improve your positive emotions, but let's be 100% frank and real with each other right now. Mm-hmm. You can't be happy all the yeah. time, right? Uh, you yeah. can't. It's not going to happen. You're going to wake up on some days and just be like, I feel terrible. Why do I do this? Uh, when you've got a hangover, as an example, or even outside of that. So the highs are going to be contrasted uh, by the lows. Um, that's obviously the point of comparison, but it is in your best interest mm-hmm. unequivocally to understand how you can improve your happiness and leverage that. But that's why we're going to cover negative emotion next week because in the times that you aren't feeling great about yourself, in the times that you are, people are telling you, be happy, be this, be that, how do you actually go about um, removing and dealing with that negative emotion, which is exactly what we're going to cover next week. Super strong, yeah. Uh, makes perfect sense. You, and you wouldn't really want to be a positive emotion all the time because it's in the contrast of your emotional experiences where you find that difference and that joy. 80-20 for this week. What do you got? I got this. Uh, producing happiness involves des- deciding, designing, and doing. Focus on those levers of pleasure and purpose that are in your control rather than the ones that wish you wish were in your own control. Ooh. 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 <laughs> Bang. Uh, I really like that. It's very philosophical. Very, very philosophical. <laughs> Shock me. Uh, and yours? Yeah, surprise, surprise. Mine is positive emotions come from positive inputs and positive perceptions. Feed your brain good stuff and look out for good stuff to feel happier more often. I absolutely Super simple. It. Let's wrap, wrap this up. up. Let's wrap it up. Thank you so much for listening to this week uh, on our episode on positive emotions. As always, if you want to find more of the studies, more of the information, luckily for you, we have really just started releasing our Brain Tools newsletter. So you can get a complete breakdown of this episode, even more research. And even more brain tools. I have a couple other juicy ones that I'm going to reserve just for this newsletter. And you can find it at braintools.substack.com. And that'll be in the show notes. And if that's not your kind of thing, head over to our Instagram, Instagram at braintoolspodcast. Follow us. And if you love this episode, please, please, please do us a massive favor. Help us get the word out about by posting a story uh, of your screenshot with much love. Uh, as Kieran said, next week's going to be about negative emotions, about taming the beast of negative emotions, so to speak, and also about you know some of the good side of negative emotions. Thank you for listening today. That's all I've got for you. So bye from me. Bye from me as well. See you next week. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Brain Tools. We've got three quick things to hit you with before you go. One, if you want to hear other Brain Tools, you can find our other episodes at the link below and on all podcasting platforms. Number two, if you like this episode, then give us a review on iTunes or Spotify only if it's above four stars. And number three, you can go ahead and join the braintools.mn.co community where we'll post a complete brain guide based on this episode, plus a ton of other resources. Best of all, it is completely free. Cannot wait to see you next episode. And until then, bye for now. See you next episode.